Well, hello and welcome to another episode of Galaxy Moonbeam Night Sight. We are the retro show that talks to all the good baby boomer memories that each and every one of us have. We talk about the notable celebrities, movies, films, books, toys, bikes, and more. I'm Mike. I'm Smitty. I'm George. And the three of us here are today standing by to present you on a silver platter. No, in our case with our show, it's a Roy Rogers TV tray. A story about some famous folks who worked together and also were pretty chummy off duty, and none other who can present this in the rarest of rare forms is our good pal George Halalakos. Welcome back to the show, George. Thank you so very much, my friend. Always a pleasure to be here. Today I wanted to talk about famous male duos on the big film screen. Now I'm not speaking about the buddy film per se. I'm talking about specific duos that were under studio contract and it was an era in which the studio contract basis allowed for these pairings to occur on not only a recurring and sustainable basis, but it went on for years and years. And the formula behind this is basically presenting two males who have mutual respect. They have distinctly different personalities, but they're complementary. And what they share is a bond of friendship. Now, typically, these famous duos are historically associated with comedy, but we've also seen it evolve into action and and to a, a more recent degree responses to societal trends. If we go back in history, we find that the origins of the male duo owes its uh, origination from ancient times, the legends of Damon and Pythias. And then more recently, uh, if we look at the fictional characters of Tom Sawyer and Huckleberry Finn, which were created by Samuel Clemens. And some of the duos that come to mind that, again, not an, a, repre- a uh, all-encompassing, but rather a representative list would include Abbott and Costello, Laurel and Hardy, Crosby and Hope, Lewis and Martin. And then in later decades, we had Lemon and Mathau. Now, all of these were largely in the context of the studio system, probably with the exception of Lemon and Mathau, because they bridged an era when the studio contract system started to fade away. And more recently, in our generation, the duo that usually comes to mind is Redford and Newman. They were not only uh, good screen pals uh, on screen, but also off the screen as well. They only made two films, however, both of them iconic films, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid and The Sting. But they hearken back to the era of famous male duos that I just referenced, which span for a great length of time. I also wanted to toss in an honorable mention for Gene Wilder and Richard Pryor, uh, a comedic duo in the 1980s. And also honorable mention to Clint Eastwood and Lee Van Cleef in the Spaghetti Westerns from the mid-1960s. These are just but a few of the examples, and I thought I would toss it over to the two of you guys to see if you have any remembrances or thoughts about this. But it's certainly a formula that is not as frequent as we have seen in the past, but when it is implemented, particularly now in the context of action films, it's very, very popular. In the buddy movies, the whole genre... And it it truly is a genre, and we will get some people come in on email or Facebook who says it is not a genre because it's not drama, comedy. 
it's a subgenre, the buddy movie. And when we say the buddy movie, the companion movie, and the buddy movies were produced way back in the days of even Cecil B. DeMille, but more effectively, Louis B. Mayer. The buddy movies were produced for one reason. You may not like the actor, so we'll get a second chance to get you to pay a quarter to come buy that ticket and watch that movie. So we're going to put two actors, or an actor and actress, or two actresses up there, hoping you're going to like one of the two, preferably both of them, but we're going to hopefully double our audience, which it did masterfully, and it works to this very day, fellas. And I will tell you an example where you can go with a buddy movie, and we start out, of course, with the incomparable Laurel and Hardy, Babes in Toyland which is, to me, probably one of the most epic classic buddy movies ever to watch. If you haven't watched that, folks, I'm sure most of you watched it, watch it again. You go to The Caddy, Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis, and you'll see where I'm going after two more of these. It happened one night, Clark Gable and Claudette Colbert. Buddies. Hey, Claudette. Yeah, nice-looking buddy. Buddy. (laughs) Road to Rio, Bob Hope and Bing Crosby. Now, for the exception of Road to Rio, I'm talking about the genre, these buddies, you had a straight guy and a goof. You had the foil and the, okay? Mm -hmm. And that's what made the magic work in the buddy movies. Now, there, there was some tweaking done to that in the case of Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. They were both the funny guys. But they switched during the movie. One guy would be the straight guy. The other would be, okay? And see how mm-hmm. that works? Mm-hmm. And not only because Newman and Redford were in it, but because of the chemistry of how that was presented and produced. We go to Lethal Weapon, Danny Glover and Mel Gibson. Now, who was the straight guy there? Danny Glover, probably. You'd think. You would think. Yeah. And you think of that, what made Buddy movies so memorable? Not necessarily because of who played in it, but how they played when they were in it. What happened? When you talked about the Road 2 movies, Road to Utopia, you had an energy and a chemistry that occurred because there was one of the buddies who was a little intellectually maybe limited more than the other one. Jerry Lewis, Dean Martin, you know who the straight guy was there. And that's what makes these buddy movies, as we talk about, so important to the history of film, because it brought out a character in one of the actors, or both, that was not typically made available when that one actor was by his or herself on mm-hmm. the big screen. Mm-hmm. So I think inter- it launched a lot of careers as a result of making a buddy movie. It made a lot of big people bigger. I think what's interesting about this, you mentioned something earlier about having a good relationship on screen as well as off mm-hmm. screen. Certainly that was true for Laurel and Hardy. That was very true for Bing Crosby and Bob Hope because they even had uh, golf tournaments that they sponsored that were uh, playing off each other and and, and providing a a synergy for both. You notice that uh, Abbott and Costello had a very good relationship, but on a personal level it cooled at the end, which is what led to their breakup. And yet at the end when Mr. Costello preceded uh, Mr. Abbott in death that he was very grieved by the passing of uh, of his partner and then with Lewis and Martin of course that was a rather tempestuous relationship and fortunately the two of them were able to achieve some reconciliation before 
Mr. Martin's passing. Lemon and Matthau uh, were, were friends both on screen and off, I believe. And, of course, it's well known about Redford and Newman uh, having their very strong relationship as well. And I sometimes wonder if perhaps that helped to contribute to that positive on-screen chemistry. Much as we described earlier uh, in the program that we did last year on famous movie screen couples, mm-hmm. male and female duos. Absolutely. I think, uh, to me, uh, favorite film duos, the first ones that come to mind are, are Laurel and Hardy. All of the ones that we've talked about are just really great, but just Laurel and Hardy just seem to be, for me anyway, and perhaps I'm wrong, uh, the epitome of that male duos on the, on the film screen. I liked Abbott and Costello, yeah. and my personal memory of Abbott and Costello, <clears throat> I want to know if each of you have a p- favorite memory, but my memory has both positive and a negative side to it. The negative side was it occurred in the aftermath of September 11th of 2001, but what I remember was at the time that the local cable channels in the aftermath, showed a lot of Abbott and Costello films. And I remember both my wife and I watching those uh, as a, I wouldn't say an escape, but a way to break away from the sadness uh, and the heaviness Hmm. that uh, was overhanging our nation at that time. And it was interesting to me because Abbott and Costello, you know, with with their uh, great on-screen chemistry, uh, and that male duo was able to bring lightness and laughter at a time of sadness, decades after their passing, and many, many more decades when they made those films. It's wonderful that uh, you know when you stop and think that most of these uh, individuals uh, are no longer with us, but yet they continue to be with us in film, and they continue to entertain us, and they continue to make life uh, a little bit better for us after so many years. And you fast forward up. 40, 50, 60 years to the 90s, the early 21st century, and you see the buddy movies that were produced. They were, and as as it says in Solomon, there really is nothing new under the sun. I think he was probably referring to buddy movies in the 20s and 30s because if you look at the movies, the buddy movies, so-called buddy movies of the 80s, 90s, 2000, let's talk about the Blues Brothers. Of course. A comedy buddy movie with the plot about escape and redemption. Escape and redemption, escape and redemption, Shawshank redemption, if we want to get really technical, but the core, the essence, the germination occurred back in the days of Laurel and Hardy. Mm -hmm. These guys are in a pickle. There's a problem here, and they need to get out of it, and they need to keep us engrossed and engaged while we watch them get out of it and snicker and giggle and laugh <laughs> as they're trying everything but the right way to get out of their pickle. Blues Brothers, uh, the, <laughs> you know, I, I was thinking of the Thanksgiving movie with John Candy and Steve Martin. Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. Mm-hmm. A pickle, a problem, redemption, getting home, escape. And these two goofy oddballs, any guys, are going to get it together eventually. They're going to frustrate us discourage us, make us laugh, almost make us cry, go back 60, 70 years. The same thing was happening to, well, with the, I'm talking even in the comedies, but even the, in the buddy, the buddy genre drama. Mm-hmm. But if you go back, and American cinema, the world cinema has learned so much from the early pioneers of people trying things. D.W. Griffith, Cecil B. DeMille, let's get these two people that everyone likes Claudette Colbert and Clark Gable, who have never worked together, 
and let's put them together and a plot about redemption and distance and away from home and trouble and danger. Let's see what happens. It's working to this very day, yeah. fellas. Yeah. And I believe that that particular film won Best Picture. Absolutely. Best mm-hmm. Actor and Best Actress. Yeah. 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 It's Pretty amazing. Uh, cool stuff. It's amazing. It's very, very good. So uh, we uh, thank George for uh, helping us to remember some of our favorite on-screen male duos of the past and some of the present, too. So thanks again, George, for that. We're going to pause right now for our retro commercial, and we'll be back with the second half of our program. So don't go away. You're listening to Galaxy Moonbeam Nightside on the Galaxy Nostalgia Network. Turning just plain meatballs into meatballs deluxe is easy if you serve them on rice in a marvelous mushroom sauce. The secret of the sauce is in this jar of Miracle Whip salad dressing. Just blend two-thirds of a cup of evaporated milk with a half cup of Miracle Whip and a fourth teaspoon of celery seed to make a superbly seasoned mixture to which you add a three-ounce can of mushrooms drained. Now pour it over meatballs that you've browned in craft oil. About 20 minutes over low heat blends the flavor of the meat and the one and only flavor of Miracle Whip into a mysteriously spicy, velvety sauce. A spoon on lettuce wedges, we've mixed Miracle Whip with a little Kraft French and pitted ripe olives sliced. The delicate flavor of Miracle Whip from a whole bouquet of fresh ground spices makes everything taste special. Tomorrow, pick up a jar of America's best-liked salad dressing, Miracle Whip, created for you by Kraft. This is Bill Earle, and you're listening to the Galaxy Moonbeam Night Sight on the Galaxy Nostalgia Network. I probably shouldn't have played that retro commercial because now I'm hungry. But that, that was the uh, that was the voice of Ed Hurley, who used to do so many of the craft commercials back in the day. So uh, a little recipe there for you. If any of you try that recipe, uh, let us know how it turns out. I'm sure it still will turn out real good to this day. Welcome back to Galaxy Moonbeam Nightside here on the Galaxy Nostalgia Network. I'm Smitty with my good friends Mike B. and George. And we're going to toss it over to our good buddy Mike B. Now, he's going to talk to us about a topic that all of us uh, little boys can relate to, and that is matchbox cars. Remember the little tiny matchbox cars that uh, we all had? I think most of us had them, and uh, they were uh, neat. They could fit in your pocket. You could do all kinds of things with them. You could take them to school. You could trade them with your friends. Mike B., matchbox cars. Thanks, Smitty. And, you know, it was actually a school in England that gave the idea which gave birth to the matchbox cars. We're talking about a fellow uh, actually by the name of Jack O'Dell. And he was a toy designer in England. And he had a daughter who went to school. And the rule at at her school, and this was in 1953, 61 years ago, the rule was that you could bring a toy, you could bring your toys to school as long as they fit into a matchbox. You could bring your toys. So, old Jack Odell, in honor of his love for, I guess, making money, beautiful toys, and making sure his daughter didn't get sent to the girl's vice principal's office, designed the first matchbox toy or matchbox car, and that was the Queen Elizabeth Coronation Coach, which is a million have been made, probably a lot more than a million uh, This is an old report here. But through the years, we've all had our favorite matchbox cars, matchbox trucks. I I remember my first matchbox 
My first Matchbox toy was number 11. It was a green municipal bus. I can remember that. And it was very detailed, all except the tires. All Matchbox toys in the early days were gray, all the tires. Mm -hmm. But you could get a cement mixer. You could get the uh, early vehicles, the Stanley Steamer, if that was your thing. You could get an ambulance, fire trucks, and they were finely detailed. It was very, very hard to break them, no matter how how hard my two brothers and I tried. (laughs) Unless we got it within the devouring grips of my dad's binge vice, we could not tear them up. You could scrape them up and rust them, and a lot of those are going to be found for the next millennium by metal detectors in parks (laughs) and backyards across the world. But I believe they were 49 cents, and some were a dollar, and they came in the box the size of a matchbox. And the matchbox, the carton itself was just as cool to me as the car because that could be the garage, it could be a ramp, it could be a grease lube rack, or it could be the showpiece block that you displayed your cars on. Mm-hmm. Well, in their evolution, uh, they started selling a few cars and created a few different models, and suddenly it took off because a kid could get in the car and go for a ride with his folks to his Aunt Toosie's, he or her, and they could fill their pockets up and have a fleet of cars, have six, seven, eight matchbox cars, their favorite, and, and be uh, occupied all day long, Smitty. Yes. And as uh, Lesney created more and more of these matchbox models, they became so famous and highly collectible that there became sub-collectibles. There were matchbox service stations. There were matchbox carrying cases. My little brother Tim had a suitcase that would fold in half, and it looked like a matchbox carton for a matchbox car, but it was a carrying case, I think, that held 24 cars behind a plastic protector, and it snapped. And you would fold that up like a book and clip it closed, and off you would go on vacation or to your friend's house. And I remember they were highly tradable. I was in elementary school in my matchbox era of my life, the Bell Epoch period, so to speak, of Mike Bragg's matchbox <laughs> years. And you would trade them, just like you would baseball cards, George. You would trade, I'll trade you the bus for the moving van. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't know about that. Maybe the moving van and the Citroen station wagon. Oh, okay, but I get your Fritos at lunch. So they were highly, they were highly tradable commodities. Mm-hmm. It was the currency of most playgrounds and schoolyards in the 50s and 60s. And even to this day, when you do, other than eBay, you can find perfect mint condition mint condition matchbox cars and trucks and all the other things perfect and you're going to pay for those but i will tell you 90 percent of the time when you find a matchbox toy it's been played with mm-hmm. it's been around because you imagine little nine eight seven year olds grubby little fingers drag racing that thing across the driveway pavement or slamming it against wiping it out doing a steve mcqueen <laughs> rollover so they're very hard to find them in great shapes but I think, do you have a Matchbox story, Smitty? Yeah. When I was, I remember one, one year uh, for Christmas, I got the Matchbox service station, which came, which was a, a BP, a British Petroleum station, and it had the little garage that the doors would open, you could, and you could put the little cars in. And it came with the tow truck and the tanker, and it came with, I believe, uh, one, one more little car, or maybe one or two more little cars. And uh, I believe, um, believe it or not, I think that's uh, 
those are the only matchboxes that I ever had, but I sure had a ton of fun with those. And actually, they are. Um, I have a friend of mine who uh, collects them, has an extensive collection of matchbox cars. They made all kinds of things. I mean, it's just unreal, the volume of cars. George, uh, any, any matchbox car memories? Well, I was going to say that what I recall about matchbox cars was you could have so much fun in your world of imagination, mm-hmm. and it was so interactive. I recall that my favorite matchbox cars, uh, there was two. One were the trucks that contain logos associated with a popular product. For example, the tanker trucks that would have the name of uh, certain petroleum companies. Or there was a a certain type of uh, truck that carried on it perhaps a house. Mm -hmm. And then there was my favorite was the snow track because it had these little rubber tracks and it moved like like a snow track that you would find in, in the snow. And what I found really great about it was taking these matchbox toys and one of my favorite things to do as a child was to create my own dioramas. It mm-hmm. might be a small town. It might be uh, another planet. That's why I would use the snow track as my, as my uh, interplanetary <laughs> rover vehicle, if you will, like on Lost in Space or something, the chariot. And other such things that I would do with other kids. Or it might be that you were playing uh, Army or something, so mm-hmm. you would have the little matchbox cars to go with your other uh, miniature toys. It was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. And I think what Mike hit on was that the portability. If you went with your parents, uh, you know, usually what would happen is that you were sent into the TV room or the mm-hmm. den. And so you brought your own toys or your books or something to read, as, and it was fun. It was. And it, they were uh, the variety, the sheer variety of different models that Matchbox made was really incredible. Like I said, the like we've said, the uh, the passenger cars, the trucks, the the special purpose vehicles, and before we were we went on the air, we were talking about one particular vehicle that we were all chuckling about, the Unimog. The Unimog. Yes. Oh, the U word. <laughs> the U word. That takes yeah. us to other worlds. Yes, yes it does. Mike, you were you're, yeah. Mike. Mike is still looking for a Unimog to this day, and we're going to find him one. Well, yeah, the Unimog to me was. <laughs> that was the missing link of the matchbox worlds. I couldn't, I couldn't beat one out of a guy in a trade, an even trade, or I couldn't find them to buy because they were so cool that they sold so fast because it was a military type vehicle. Yes. And upon researching this story today, I learned why the Unimog and others kind of like it were so scarce in the United States because they weren't meant to be produced in the United States. One thing about Lesney. The original producer of the Matchbox car line before Mattel bought them out in, I believe, 2000, maybe 1992, Lesney, the Matchbox producers, they would gear their production and their models and their styles to different regions of the world. The Chinese would get a line of Matchbox toys relating to their daily life. The Russians would get things. The French would get the Citroen. Once in a while, Lesney would have an overrun, and they would do a product test and send over to the United States the Citroen and the uh, the little cars with the string wheel on the wrong side, and in my case, the Unimog. And it was a military truck, and it's 
I found out it's not as scarce as I thought it was. I was just on the wrong side of planet Earth at the time when they were Your very parents fashionable. took you to the wrong stores. Well, yeah, and I <laughs> And at the time, George, I was hooked on the movie Combat with Vic Morrow. Of course. And talk about diorama. I had this idea that I were going to I thought I would have the Germans turning in this Unimog around this shady tree-lined area, at which time, in other words, I was trying to make one of the first cardboard box shooting galleries with a Mattel product and a Unimog. Well, anyway, to this day, I think I lost the shoebox, but the Unimog, Smitty, is still on my mind, gentle on my mind. Yes, well, uh, well, we're going to find, Mike, a, a Unimog, and when we find him a Unimog, we're going to post a picture of that Unimog on the Galaxy page. Oh, please do so. <laughs> you know what's great about Matchbox cars, though, that from my personal pers- perspective, was that it fueled an interest in model making, model building, and also other collectibles, because later on I collected not a lot of them, but some of the iconic Corgi toys, mm-hmm. which were a little larger scale than Matchbox. And then I have, as I think as I mentioned in a previous program, I have the original Hot Wheels from 1967-68 that were that heavy metal, not plastic, but the heavy the metal, metal with ones. all the original fixings and still in And, and that's great you bring that condition. up because I know we will get some response from our devoted listenership because you might have been a Matchbox kind of person, but then again you may have been a Corgi kind of person or Corgi or a Dinky toy person. But whatever, per- these were die cast and uh, we can go down the list. There was uh, Dinky, Husky, Johnny Lightning, mm. uh, Shuko. I had some Shuko racers. George, probably a little bit a little bit before your time, these were very finely engineered. They were made in Germany. Mm-hmm. They were little race cars, and you had a, actually a little miniature roller skate key where you'd wind the motor, oh, wow. and you could turn the front wheels, and they, w- they were it was like a, a clock. It, they were clockwork, but they were wonderful. If you could get one of those, very pricey. But what happened to the die-cast model toy industry, uh, such as Lesney, who had actually gone bankrupt? They just couldn't compete with production. Mm-hmm. Um, and they ended up selling to Mattel, and Mattel dumped the line. I'm fr- I don't remember in my research, maybe Universal, but what happened in the course, and in the case of a lot of diecasts, a lot of metal toys, talking everything, uh, they just couldn't compete with the plastic stuff. So the end of the Matchbox toys came in the toward the late end of the 20th century, and they were taken over by the scale model manufacturers, you know, Airfix, Aurora. Monogram, Ravel, and they even made miniatures. But we're talking, we're talking about an era where a toy was not made to throw away after a week. Did right? your parents, with either of you, play with the Matchbox? Because, because in my case, because I was an only child, mm-hmm. my parents actually did take time with me individually yes. to play with me with the Matchbox cars. Because they might say, "Oh, maybe you might want to think about setting it up this oh. way," or "Have you thought that?" And I yeah. thought that was one of the beauty. Of, uh, beautiful aspects of the Matchbox cars because it facilitated this uh, parent-child interaction. Yes. And it was fun. And your parents were actually playing with you with your toys yeah. because they were so realistic. Absolutely. I remember my grandfather, would we would make scenarios on the dining room table. And my big thing is the ambulances and the police cars and the fire trucks. And we would have them all situated around this fictional street because of this emergency event but it, you're absolutely right it would it was like playing checkers with an elder mm-hmm. 
they could get into the role-playing and the imagination of the mind. And the imagination of the mind when you're a little kid, I don't care if you're 78 or 98 years old, if you keep your mind fresh and open and imaginative, you'll never grow out of being a little kid. And I just turned 60 a few months ago, and if somebody drops a Unimog in my hand, I'm going to run. No, with my knees, I'm going to waddle away. And I, being Matchbox and any kind of toy, but you know, you got to know the toys, even back in the 50s and 60s, you just couldn't bust them. You could really make a wholehearted attempt to destroy them, and you couldn't. Today, I have a grandson, and... We have to do the crush test because if we don't, <laughs> and he's a year old, it's going to be gone in 10 days or less. Gone wow. in 60 seconds. Wow. But that's the thing on the matchbook. And if you do collect them, again, it's condition, condition, condition. If you have the original matchbook's container, oh, my. Mm-hmm. Go look on eBay and get back to me, especially for the number 11 bus. It was probably mine. Wow. That's great. Well, okay. Mike, what good memories. Thanks for sharing that, and thanks for leading us through that. So that brings us to the end of our program. We do hope that you've enjoyed this past half hour, and we do hope that you will take a moment to drop us a line and let us know if you have any memories or if you'd like to share anything with us. Our email address is galaxymoonbeamnightsite at gmail.com. Our website is galaxymoonbeamnightsite.com. And don't forget the Galaxy Moonbeam Nightsite page on Facebook. A lot of neat pictures and stuff there that we try to keep updated for you. So if you are a fan of Facebook, drop in and check us out on Facebook. We'd love to see you there. So until our next program, I'm Smitty. I'm Mike. And I'm George. And we thank you so much for joining us, and we hope that you'll join us again next time on Galaxy Moonbeam Nightside on the Galaxy Nostalgia Network. This is the Galaxy Nostalgia Network.